The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen. Church, this morning we're going to continue our reading. We're going to be finishing our reading as a corporate family, Lord, through the 119th Psalm. This morning we're in verses 169 to 176. This is the word of God. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, it never fails that as as I prepare to step into this pulpit, trusting in your spirit to help me rightly speak of you, to rightly handle your word, and I long for, by that same spirit, that you would give these people ears to hear, Father, it never fails. It never ceases to amaze me the way in which I I find myself trembling. Shaky knees and failing voice. Father, we feel your weight this morning. We feel the seriousness that accompanies true worship. So Father, we're asking that as we approach your word this morning, you would prepare our hearts. You would focus our minds. And Father, we would leave this place with a sense of serious and sober-minded and unshakable joy because we have been here with you. We have seen you as you are. And we know that nothing and no one can wrestle your children from your hand. So, Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hate to do it, but I must ask you to return to your feet, please. The reverence to the reading of God's word. We continue reading together this first chapter of Ephesians. Verse 3 through 14, I remind you that this is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. We must receive it as such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you make this book live to me? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we come this morning to these final words in the Apostle Paul's blessing of God the Father for his planning of our redemption. Lord willing, next Sunday we will move from verse 6 here in chapter 1 of Ephesians to verse 7. Now with that move will come a change in focus. As the Apostle Paul takes us from eternity past and he brings us to that blessed day some 2,000 years ago. To that appointed moment where the Son of God stepped into time that he might accomplish our redemption for those very same saints whom the Father had chosen. But before we leave this section of Paul's doxology, we need to make sure that we have a firm grasp, that we haven't lost the forest for the trees as we have we've dived deeply into each one of these sections, really considering what each one of these words mean. And so we need to make sure that we have a firm grasp on everything that we have spent these last four months trying so very hard to see. And church, I know it's been hard. I know there are times when what we have done here in this room is we have approached and sought to rightly understand the Word of God. I know that it has been, and I know that it continues to be extremely hard. I've heard from far too many of you to, to believe otherwise. I've heard from far too many of you just how difficult it is to come into this place and sit under the full weight of the full counsel of God. I want you to know that I'm aware of this. I want you to know that you are not alone, but more than this, I want you to know that this is good. Church, the God who is, is far too big to ever be fully understood. You people know this. Perhaps more than any other church I've ever known of, you people know this. You know that we can never fully comprehend all that there is to know about the true and living God. Not when we stand face to face before him in heaven, and certainly not today, as we live in this world in our frail bodies, in our fallen minds, surrounded by sin. And so we will always be stretched beyond our ability whenever we seek to see and to know and to think right thoughts about the God who is. There will be this constant need for reforming of our mind, for this changing in our theology, just about the time we think that we have a grasp on it. Just about the time that we think we have something about God figured out, there's more. There's something more. 
and we need an adjustment to come into our thoughts as we seek to, to bring our minds in line with the Holy Scriptures. And I recognize that this can be scary, this can be painful, can be extremely frustrating. But church, I'm telling you, this is good. You would not want a God that you could master. Because a God like that would not be big enough to save you, to redeem you from slavery, to walk you through this life filled with suffering, and to guarantee that he will hold you fast in his hand and that nothing and no one will ever be able to snatch you away. So I say this to you this morning so that those of you that feel like you're floundering, those of you who feel like you are barely treading water and you've lost sight of the shoreline, I say this to you this morning so that you can know, that you can know that even as you come into this place recognizing that your only hope for true joy that your only hope for true satisfaction is to see God as he really is, and yet you can't seem to steady yourself long enough to really get a good look at him. I say this to you this morning as a word of encouragement. Number one, you must know that God has you exactly where he wants you. God has brought you here for this purpose. If it is true that no man ever gains mastery of God, if it is true that no man ever gets to the end of God, and if the reality is that even the wisest theologians, even the greatest minds that have devoted their lives to the studying of the Bible, if it is true that any knowledge they gain of God in this life is but a mist compared to the oceans of him that await us in eternity, then this whole thing becomes a whole lot less about arriving somewhere and a whole lot more about celebrating and embracing and rejoicing and what God's doing in the struggle. Think about it. God could have, by the working of his spirit, at the moment of your salvation, God could have brought you to the full knowledge of everything there is to know about him, at least as much as he was willing to reveal in this life. But he didn't. Instead, he has allowed you, he has allowed me, he has allowed every single one of us to continue to think thoughts about him that are not true. He didn't send his spirit at the moment of regeneration and completely perfect your theology. Instead, he allows you to struggle. Instead, he bids you to come to him day after day after day. A constant sense of need, a constant desire for fellowship and communion. He expects for you to come to him like humble children, desperate, dependent, trusting that in his presence, by his word, he will bring you to clear sight, that he'll enlighten the eyes of your heart to behold his glory. So the purpose then is that we come into his presence and we cry out, God, I would know nothing about you had you not chosen to reveal it to me. I didn't seek you. I didn't find you. You came to me. And so I'm asking you now. I am begging you, help me to see you more clearly. That then becomes the process. You must know that we have no idea the ways in which God responds, the way in which God uses a prayer like this. As you come into his presence, not trusting upon your own wisdom, not begrudging the sight of himself, the knowledge of himself that he's given to another, not feeling frustrated that you're not further along. As you simply come into his presence and trust in his working by his spirit, you have no idea. I have no idea the way that God uses this as he works through this struggle to transform us. Do you understand? I'm telling you that there are things, there are good things that God is doing in your life that would not otherwise happen had he not taken you by the hand and walked you through this long and oftentimes difficult path. Even when it feels like you're just treading water, even when it feels like you're spinning your wheels, even when it feels like nothing is happening, 
God is doing good for you. He's doing good in the struggle. Now, I, I bring this up because over the last few months, I've had the opportunity to sit with a number of you, to sit down with a number of you and talk about this very thing. So I make this point because I have to assume that if five people, six people, seven people come to me, that means there's probably 50 or 60 or 70 people behind them that are experiencing and feeling the same thing. So my desire is to stand before you this morning and give you this word of encouragement. During one of those meetings, I sat down and we were just considering this truth together. A few dear brothers and I, and and one of those brothers, he drew our attention to Hebrews 4, verse 12, where we read that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we all must give an account. This brother reminded us that by his word, God is doing surgery on you. And surgery is never comfortable. There's something quite terrifying about being laid out, splayed out on the table, naked and exposed, while someone else, he didn't didn't ask your opinion, he he didn't ask for your permission, he simply cuts away He carves out those pieces of you which do not belong. This is terrifying. It's a helpless feeling. And yet this is exactly what must happen. Yes, we labor hard. We come into this place in prayerful anticipation. We go into our quiet place, we open the word, and we wrestle there alone with the word of God. And then we come into this place and we actively engage our minds. We work hard to lean in, to press deeper, to try and understand the word of God. Then you leave this place and you meet together in your small groups and you try to flesh out who is this God that is revealing himself in his word. But you must know that all the while, in all your labors, in all your efforts, in all your work, in all your striving, that it is the master surgeon who is doing the real work. He is the one who holds the scalpel. He is the one who is carving away. He knows what is needed as you lay there on the table. He is working in you. He's exposing the the intentions of your heart revealing to you sins that you didn't even know that you had. He's removing anything that is not holy. And then ultimately, much like Jesus coming to that once blind man, touching him not once, but twice, over and over and over again, he is causing you to know and to see him more clearly. I don't say this as someone who has arrived, and I don't say this as someone who can't relate to where you are. I need you to know that I've sat exactly where you are, I promise you. I know all too well what it's like to come to the Holy Scriptures and realize that so much of what you once believed to be true about God simply is not true. It feels like your whole world is upside down. It's a helpless feeling. It's a a miserable feeling. Ask my wife. I spent the better part of a year unable to sleep because I didn't even know what to think about God, much less how to speak truly about him. My world had been rocked. I would have walked away if I could unsee what I had seen, but now I had seen it. I knew that it was true. There was no denying that it was true. I couldn't undo it. So in that moment, I just cried out, God, just make it all make sense. But instead, he allowed me to struggle. He allowed me to wrestle. He allowed me to feel like I was standing on constantly shaking ground. And in the end, I stand here and I look back and I praise God for the work that he was doing in me through that struggle. More than this, I praise God for time after time after time over the 10 or 15 years that have come since that day when he's continued to put me under his knife.
And so, someone who knows exactly what you feel, I'm telling you that God has you exactly where he wants you. And therefore, perhaps the biggest fight for us is a faith family. Perhaps the biggest fight for some of you as you wrestle with these things is to fight to trust that God knows what he's doing. He's not abandoned you somewhere along the path. He's not brought you to this revelation of himself. He's not given you this glimpse of himself and then left you there. He's got you right where he wants you, that you don't have to understand it all. You don't have to move 10 steps down the line. The question is, do I trust that he knows what he's doing, and then I will rest in him, even, and especially when it feels like nothing I once knew made sense. But secondly, I want to urge you to come to me. You have questions. You have concerns. You just you can't find your solid footing. Come to me, especially if discouragement or frustration are set, settling in. You must recognize that God, God called me here to be your pastor, not just to stand in this pulpit and preach, not even just to devote my time to study, but to pray desperately for you and to walk with you, to walk alongside you as you head down this path with him. Yes, I'm still on this same journey. Yes, I still find myself being cut on by that same scalpel, and yet God will use my weakness and my frailty and your weakness and your frailty as we come together in my office, as we sit down and we seek to know what this word actually means by what he actually says, that in that we will both be strengthened and the church will be blessed. If I'm better able to understand where you are, where God has you, where are your thoughts, where are your fears, where are your concerns, where have you been lost in your understanding of who God is? God will bless us. God will strengthen us. God will use this time to bless me. He will use this time to better equip you for the ministry. And in this, the whole church will be strengthened as little by little we press on together, longing for this unity, growing in unity in the knowledge of Christ. In the words of Ephesians 4, as we strive towards mature manhood, towards the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness of deceitful schemes. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you here? That God isn't just working on you for you, but rather through the working of his word, as God has compelled you to come and give your life to this faith family. As you come into this place and God causes you to utilize the teachers and the shepherds, the pastors that he has given you, he is working in you. He is strengthening you for the sake of us all. This isn't just about you. Now, I need to get to this morning's text, but you must understand, God isn't just working in you for you. You're not just going through this struggle for your own sake. As magnificent as the struggle is, as wonderful as the working of God is in your life, as much as I rejoice at the fact that you are growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ, even in your own studies, you must know that he is working in your good for our good. He's working in your life. He is changing you for the sake of this body so that he might be glorified as this whole body, as it grows together, as it builds itself up in love. What I'm telling you is we need you. We need you. We need the gifts that God has given you. We need you to cultivate those gifts. We need you to use those gifts. We need you to bring them to the body. We need you in your quiet time to press deeper into the truths of God to rely more fully upon the power of his spirit so that you can then be used to build up others. You can be used to build up this body. So I'm saying, don't give up. 
saying keep pressing. I'm saying don't allow discouragement. Don't allow the enemy to tempt you to become discouraged. Don't allow those outside the walls of this church to distract you. I'm asking you to trust that if God knows what he is doing, then he has brought you to this place for a purpose. If God knows what he is doing, that he is working a good work in you, a work for your good and for his glory. I'm telling you not to give up, not just for your sake, but for the sake of this church that you love. So, with all of that in mind, I'll remind you that two weeks ago, we wrestled with some really hard things. We contemplated together the, what is the biblical definition of that phrase, the glory of God? In short, the word glory, it speaks to the weight, the significance, the intrinsic beauty and worth of God. That God's glory is not a thing that he possesses, but rather it's a way of giving expression to all that he is. Not just one attribute among many, but the sum of God's infinite perfections, his omnipotence, his immeasurable wisdom, his unending holiness, all that radiates from the, from the essence of this God who is, this God who is the highest, who is the greatest, who is the only being truly worthy of worship in all the universe. This is the glory of God. And as such, God's glory is his highest and his greatest, his truest and most abiding passion. If you were to ask me to tell you just one thing about God, tell me that one thing, that one abiding truth, that one lens through which God's world will make sense, that one lens through which God's word will make sense, the only lens through which that's life that God has given us will make sense. I'm not sure I could do any better than this, that God is ferociously jealous for the glory of his own name. That this is the, re- this is the refrain that runs all throughout the scriptures. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to any other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That in the final days, there will be no need of sun or moon or lanterns or lamps, for the radiance of the glory of God shall be our light. That this is the story of the Bible. This is a story of redemptive history. This is the end for which God created the world. It's the reason why literally everything and everyone that exists is. The ultimate purpose for every single thing that happens, it is this, is that God's glory might be seen and known and celebrated by his creatures. Now last week we considered together how God works this out in the lives of those who reject this glory. How can God possibly be glorified in the lives of unrepentant sinners? And these men who squeeze their eyes close, uh, uh, tight, trying to blind themselves from the glory that they have seen, exchanging the truth about God for a lie, exchanging the treasure of God for the things that he has created. How can God possibly be glorified in this? We came to realize that Scripture tells us that in the end, this foolish man, He will close his eyes in this life. He will open them in the next and find that that very glory from which he ran his entire life now stands before him as a consuming fire. He finds that there is no escaping the glory of God. That he stands before it now and he finds it poured out upon him in wrath. Unending, just, righteous, commendable wrath. I tried to show you last week how this is a praiseworthy thing. This is not a thing that Christians need to be bashful about. 
that while God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, while Jesus truly did mourn over the coming destruction of Jerusalem, while God's ultimate goal is not wrath for the sake of wrath, it is in the display of this wrath that God is revealing to us something truly wonderful. For in this wrath, God is revealing to us something about himself. And so we must understand this wrath for what it is. It is a display of the glory of God. And in this, we see something of him. We see things that we would not otherwise see, and thereby we are truly blessed, and he is truly glorified. As he shows his infinite holiness in the righteous and just destruction of unrepentant sinners, even unrepentant sinners whom we desperately love. You see, God would not be the infinitely just judge if he could simply ignore even the slightest hint, even the smallest of transgressions to his law. God would not be the infinitely majestic king if he could simply overlook the slightest hint of dishonor to his name. God would not be the infinitely holy Lord if he could simply allow man, stained by the guilt of sin, to come into his presence and live. Therefore, what we see in God's God's settled, his unchanging hatred, His disposition of hatred towards sin and sinners. What is being revealed here is something truly glorious. It is the holiness of God when it comes up against the sin and the guilt and the shame of men. Therefore, as I told you last week, the wrath of God is not a blemish to be overlooked. It is a glory to be praised. We praise him for in it we see him as he is. And so last week, in an attempt to bring you to this fuller vision, this more robust picture of the fullness of who God is as he has revealed himself in Scripture and in this world, I drew your eyes to this. I also did this for the sake of providing for you this black backdrop, this contrast, this darkness by which you can see the radiance of God's mercy shining all the brighter. You cannot fully understand. We cannot fully comprehend the true weight of glory. The true blessing of God no longer holding us as instruments of wrath, as vessels of wrath, as those who would be destined for destruction, but taking us and making of us something new, of pouring out his endless spiritual blessings into our lives. We would not be able to fully comprehend this did we not understand just what we deserve. Or perhaps we got it twisted up in our minds somehow into believing that God's glory required him, that God's love and his goodness somehow required him to grace us in this way. It's only then that we recognize that God's purpose in all things, including in our grace, including in the wrath of others, is that we may see and know and praise his glory. So it seemed to me that we now have a pretty good grasp on what this word means. It's a tough word, it's a tough word to define. That's why it's taken us almost two, three, four sermons now to wrap our minds around it. But I feel that we have a peop- as a people, we have a pretty good grasp now. This is what it means when the Bible speaks about the glory of God. What about that word grace? Now, we spent much time back in our seventh sermon on this book of Ephesians trying to understand what does God mean when he speaks about his grace? And again, God willing, whenever we come to Ephesians chapter 2 and we consider verse 5 and 8 together, we will dive much deeper. But for this morning, I think it will do that I will tell you that in the simplest terms, grace is the unmerited favor, the unmerited goodness of God. Literally, any kindness that his creatures receive, that sinful man receives in this life, the food in our bellies, the clothing on our backs, the homes that we live in, the money that we have, the families that we get to do life with, that all of this is the grace of God. We didn't earn it. We don't don't deserve it. 
literally anything short of death and eternal damnation, it is a free gift, unmerited favor, a grace from God. But the Apostle Paul seems to have here in this section of Ephesians something much greater in mind. He doesn't seem to be drawing our attention to the immediate, to these earthly gifts of grace that God gives to the whole of mankind. We call this common grace. He seems to be looking beyond that. He's not talking about those gifts that God gives to the whole of humanity because Paul's not talking to the world here. He's talking to us. He's talking to the saints. He's talking to those who have been chosen by God and set apart unto himself. The Apostle Paul seems to be saying here that God has done something much greater for us. You see, that's the thing about grace. Grace is not owed equally to everyone because grace is not owed at all. That there are things that God does There are ways in which he is gracious to us that he is not gracious to the whole of humanity for no reason other than before the foundation of the world he set his love upon us. As unlovely as we are, as unworthy as we are, God has predestined us for this. Something much more than just sustaining our physical lives. Something so much more than just making this planet habitable. That by grace, God has saved our souls and promised us eternal life. That while we were filthy and ugly and unlovable little children, while we were rebels destined, determined to do evil, to reject his glory, that the God who had set his love on us before the foundation of the world, he came crashing into our life by the work of his spirit, that he brought us from death to life, from darkness to light, and did absolutely everything necessary to make sure that we found ourselves under the fount of his endless and eternal blessings. That this is the efficacious, the irresistible, the salvific grace that God has bestowed upon us, his saints. And what the Apostle Paul is telling us here is that God's purpose in all of this is that we would then give expression to the world as an act of praise for this. See, that's what praise is, true praise. As you study that word and you really consider the ways in which God uses it in the Scripture, it is never empty. It is never absent thought. It is never some empty-minded thing, just some emotive outpouring of nothing. It is always driven by sight, by a knowledge, by an understanding of who God is and what he has done. Why is he worthy of this praise? And so as we, of all people, have come to see and to know the way in which God has mercied, the way in which he has graced us as undeserved sinners, the immediate impulse then should be one of praise. Not just with our lips in this place, but with the whole of our lives. That with our money, with our talents, with our time, with the way that we forgive, with the way that we extend grace, with the way we refuse to hold a grudge, with the way that we give up the right to be offended, that in all these things there is a sign in our life pointing to the glory of God's grace. That our passion becomes his passion. That our ultimate desire becomes his, his ultimate desire becomes our ultimate desire that we would devote the whole of our lives to praising the glory of his grace. So this morning, with the time that remains, I want to direct your attention to those very last words there in verse 6. That last phrase that we read, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. before we shift our minds and we shift our hearts and we move away from the work of God and planning our redemption, before we move from eternity past 
and come to that blessed day 2,000 years ago when the Son of God came crashing into this world and did all that was necessary to purchase our redemption. I want to make sure that we know what these words mean. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. With what? It's pointing backwards to this grace. That's the subject here. That's what he's talking about. He's saying that grace that we have just marveled at, that grace that we stand in awe of, that grace that we find ourselves as the undeserved beneficiaries of, that that grace, God has blessed us with that grace. Now this word that is used blessed here is a little bit different than where we find it in other places. In fact, this word is only found one other place in the New Testament. And that's in the story of the angel Gabriel coming to the Virgin Mary. It's there that he calls her the highly favored one. She had done nothing to deserve this visitation. She had done nothing to set herself apart as the one who would bear the Christ child. And yet here she stood, completely shaken, completely confused, completely unworthy. And yet God has visited her in this way. This is what it means to be blessed. This sentence could literally be translated that God has graced us with his grace. It's almost like the Apostle Paul is doubling down, saying, don't get it twisted. Not only are the things that God has given you unmerited favor, undeserved gifts, absolute acts of grace, but the way that he pours them into your life, that too is grace. That he has graced us with his grace. And that he has graced us with his grace in the beloved. Now this is not an unfamiliar term to us. I've already shown you the pattern of the Apostle Paul in this wonderful doxology. He's continually drawing our minds to these phrases like, in him. Already consider verse 3. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4. God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5. God has predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. This is the clear pattern. Not just here, but throughout the whole of Paul's writing. He wants to make clear that the Christian's identity, that the true essence of what it means to be called Christian is to be one who is in Christ. That is, that before the foundation of the world, before time began, in the mind and will and purposes of God, he had already so united you to Christ. You were already so joined to Christ that God never thought about his son apart from you. He never thought about you apart from his son. That not only is our life not only is our identity, not only is our safety found in the fact that we are in Christ, but that now when God the Father looks upon God the Son and sees all that he deserves, all that he has earned, all that he is worthy of receiving, he now is free to bestow that upon us. Everything that saving grace entails, election, forgiveness, righteousness, redemption, holiness, fatherly love, lasting peace, eternal life filled with endless joy, that all of these things are ours for one reason and one reason only, we have been hidden in Christ. So that in this life as we move and we live and we act and we work out to display this glory, the praise of this glory to the world, we are literally the hands and feet of Christ Jesus going out into the world because we are those who are in him. It seems clear that the Apostle Paul wants to not allow our mind to ever drift away from this. Even as we are concentrating on the working of God the Father, he is drawing us to the way in which the Father has been able to bless us because we are in the Son. We have been found in Christ. But you notice that Paul doesn't use the word Christ here, does he? He doesn't use the title Christ here in verse 6. He doesn't say in Christ. He doesn't say in him. He doesn't say in Christ Jesus. 
but rather he says that God has graced us with his grace in the beloved. Now anytime God uses in his word a different word than he has used somewhere else, anytime he breaks his pattern like this, it ought to cause our antenna to go up and say, why? Why have you not called him Christ here? Why have you not called him Jesus the Christ? Why have you referred to him as the beloved? Because he immediately shifts back. Do you see that? Go to verse 7. He immediately goes back to in him. And he will follow that pattern all the way through the end of this section. In him, in Christ, in Christ Jesus. But here, it's not. Here it is, in the beloved. So why would the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, why would he use this word? Have we ever seen this word before? The beloved. Don't you think about Jesus' earthly ministry? Think about his baptism. Mark 1, 9. In those those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. If we fast forward a little bit to the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes there upon that high mountain, pulls back the veil to his flesh, reveals to these three some of the the glory that had been his from before the foundation of the world. And Mark 9, 7 says, And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So it seems to me that God is eager for us to recognize a couple of things here. Number one, that this one who has come, this one who has come and purchased our redemption, accomplished our redemption, that he is none other than God the Son, that he did not send someone else. He did not choose the highest angel. He did not select the mightiest of men, that God himself, God the Son, is the one who stepped into time to purchase all that God the Father had planned before the foundation of the world. These endless spiritual blessings, all that we come into this place to rejoice, all that we should fall down on our knees and thank God for, all that we are called to praise for all eternity, that this has been accomplished by this one who is God the Son. But in addition to this, he is not just the Son, he is the Beloved. He is the Beloved Son. So that we see at these high points in Jesus' earthly ministry, as we see before he is going to go out, led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, where he would be tempted by none other than the devil himself. And he's going to come down out of that high mountain. He's going to set his face like flint towards the cross preparing to march up Calvary, preparing to do this incredible thing for the salvation of the world. If God sees, he seems to have this desire at that moment that he would speak to his son, that his son would hear his voice saying, you, son, are the beloved. I am pleased with you. I am delighted with you. My love for you knows no bounds. But you notice that he didn't say this in secret, did he? He allowed us a peek. He allowed us to peek into the blessed relationship between the first and second members of the Holy Trinity. And it feels like every time God pulls back the curtain like this, every time he allows us in that place and it seems like we shouldn't be here, every time he seems eager, he seems keen to remind us, he is my beloved. Don't get it twisted. Don't see his suffering. Don't see his humiliation. Don't see his mockery. Don't see his scorn. Don't see him laying down his life and ever get it twisted into thinking, surely God must must not love him. Surely he must have fallen out of favor with the Father. He says, no, that one is my beloved. I desire for you, my children, to know that I have loved my son from before the foundation of the world with a love that you cannot fully comprehend. 
You remember as Jesus was in the upper room on that night before his crucifixion, he was praying to the Father. Again, it feels like we're having a peek. We're being given some insight into something where we don't belong. And yet we see Jesus praying there in John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am and may see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We're reminded that this one who comes, this one who comes to lay down his life, this one who comes to extend the love of God into our life, this one who comes to purchase our redemption that we may be recipients of God's saving grace, that this is the one whom God has loved from all time. What was God doing before there was time? What was God doing before there was a world? What was God doing before there were angels? What was God doing before there was a world? What God was doing was this. He was loving himself with a love so intense we cannot even fathom, with a love so great we cannot even bear the thought that this is what God was doing. Now we have fathers all throughout this room, fathers and mothers, and surely you can relate. You can relate to the love that a father has for his son. You know that you would do anything for that precious child. You know you would do anything to protect them from hurt, from pain, from suffering, suffering, from humiliation. And yet you know that this love that you have for this precious child, you know that it is but a shadow, a faint resemblance of the love that the Father has for the Son. For they are truly one in essence and in nature and in will and in substance. We're dealing with the only sinless and perfect and holy and truly glorious being in all the universe. We're doing, dealing with a love that knows no time. There was not a moment at which the Father began to love the Son. There was not a moment in which the Father decided, I will set my love upon the Son. That for all eternity, this perfect love just has been. For God to be is for God to love, and for that love will always rest upon his Son. That this is the picture we're being shown here. And yet at the same time, we must feel the weight of the reality that it is this beloved Son, his only begotten Son, his blessed Son, that this is the one that he gave to the world. We're reminded that the Father's love is not cold or distant. We can have this faulty understanding as we move from the working of the Father to the working of the Son. We can, we can begin, if we're not careful, to allow our minds to drift off to this place where we see them at cross purposes, where we see the Father as harsh and domineering. We see the Father as being in opposition to us, and then the Son comes, and he, he purchases our redemption. He accomplishes our redemption. He goes back to the Father, and then he forces the Father's hand. He says, Father, you must now love them because I have died in their stead. Father, you must now love them because they are hidden in me. Father, I have done this thing and now you must love them. And yet what we see here is it is the Father who sent the Son. He delighted in sending his Son. And the beauty of this, the weight of this, the way in which the love of God is most fully manifest to us is in the value of the gift. It's in what he gave up to purchase your love. And it was this his beloved son. There is no equal. There is no peer. There is none like him, and yet he gave him freely. Think back to John three sixteen, that well-worn verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You want to know the love of God. You want to understand the depth of the love of God the ways in which his love has been extended into your life, you look nowhere other than the cross. You look to his beloved son given on your behalf 
In this, the love of God is known. In this, we know the way that God loves the world. He gave his only, only begotten, his truly beloved son. Again, I say not the mightiest of angels, not the most worthy of men, the infinitely valuable, eternally loved son of God. And we recognize then that this hurdle between us and God's grace, this wrath that we deserve, the guilt that stains us, God's right and just hatred as the holy God standing before sinful men. We realize that the hurdle between his wrath and his grace, the hurdle between us becoming in, being enemies of God and adopted sons, it is the beloved son, the giving of the beloved son, the giving up of the most valuable thing in all the universe. That's what it costs to purchase your redemption. I've known men who lost children. I've known men who had to bury sons. And the reality is that the whole of their life is marked by that. It never goes away. Their whole of their life is marked by the reality, I am a man who lost a son. It's not their identity. Their identity is in Christ Jesus. Does not mean there's no hope, no joy, no gladness on the backside. Does not mean you cannot praise God, even in the loss. But the reality is, that will always be true. I am the man who has lost a son. And we can, again, our minds work in these, these frail ways. We can be tempted to think, yeah, but God the Father sent God the Son knowing that he would receive him back in glory. God the Father sent God the Son knowing that, yes, he will suffer while he is here. And yet he will rise, he will return, and he will reign in glory. This is true. This is true. Yet you must recognize that the intensity with which the Father loved the Son, the union between the Father and the Son, It's like nothing you've ever experienced. It's like nothing we can ever come close to giving voice to. And in this giving of his son, God was doing the most extravagant thing you could ever imagine. He wants us to understand as we prepare to move our minds, to move our hearts from the working of God the Father and planning our redemption to the work of God the Son and purchasing our redemption, God wants us to know as we look every step of the way, all that we studied in the book of Mark, as we see the condescension of the Son stepping down from heaven to be born, not into a kingly family, but to a lowly family, he wants you to know that one lying in the manger, he is my beloved. As you see the way that his people reject him, you see the way they spit in his face, that they mock him, that they constantly set traps to trip him up, God the Father wants you to know that one there, he is my beloved. As they beat him, as they strip him, as they put a crown of thorns upon his head and they strike his face, he wants you to know that one there is my beloved. As he marches up the hill to Calvary, as he is nailed to the cross, as he was pulled up high, as the Father then poured out his wrath upon his Son, he wants you to know that one there is my beloved. He wants you to see the cost. He wants you to feel the weight. He wants you to know the price of your redemption. It was his beloved son. And from that place, he wants you to recognize that if God would do such a thing as this, 
then surely there is no good thing he would ever withhold from me. In Romans chapter 8, towards the end, verse 28 down through 39, we find some real parallels. We've touched on it frequently as we work through Ephesians because we found some real parallel there, parallels there between Paul's thought in Ephesians 1 with regards to how God is working out, planning and accomplishing and sealing up our redemption. He talks about very similar terms. Talking about the fact that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Sounds an awful lot like endless spiritual blessings, doesn't it? That all good things we need for life and holiness and the glory of God have been given to us, his children. He goes on to talk about the fact that those he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined us for what? He predestined us that we might be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Sounds an awful lot like holy and blameless before him in love, doesn't it? Sounds an awful lot like adopted as sons through Christ Jesus, doesn't it? He goes on to say that those he's predestined, he is also called. And those he's called, he's also justified. And those he has justified, he is also glorified. Sounds an awful lot like the purchase of our redemption, the justification that comes through the blood of Christ Jesus our Lord. Sounds an awful lot like the work of the Holy Spirit in sealing us and holding us tight for that day of glory that is yet to come. Then the Apostle Paul, he gets to the end of this, and it's almost like he's overwhelmed. He's out of words. You you, you understand, he's done here in just a few sentences what it's taken us six months to try and unpack. This can be a bit overwhelming. You begin to wonder, can this really be true? And so it's like Paul is trying to hit this thing from another angle. He's trying to hold this diamond and turn it just once more. He anticipates the cry of the man's heart. How can this be true? So he goes on to say in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Does this mean that the whole world then is for us? That no one can ever come against us? Certainly not, because he goes on to talk about the fact that we're like sheep being led to the slaughter. We are hated by this world. They despise us. That great suffering will come in this life. There will be discipline from the hand of the Father. There will be hatred and mockery and scorn and possibly death at the hands of the world. So he's not saying the world will not come against us, but he's saying that any way that they do come against us will fail. Because the Father is for us. But how do we know? How can we know? How can we be sure that the Father is for us? Because there's a lot of things about myself that make me wonder how anyone could be for me. I'm not lovely. I'm not lovable. My faith, it wanes and it waxes. My obedience, it comes and it goes. And there's many times when I feel distant from the Father. There's many times when I wonder, how can you possibly be here when I walk through this? Who can be against me? It feels like everyone. And if this is what it means for you to be for me, I'm not sure that I want it. So how can we know? How can we know that he's really for us? How can he know that he, we know that he won't abandon us along the way? How can we know that we will be ushered into glory? How can we know that no one will ever snatch us from the hand of the Father? He says in verse 32, For he, this is the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Abraham was allowed to spare the life of his son Isaac upon that mount. Christ Jesus came to the Father in the garden. On the night of his betrayal, on the night of his arrest, Christ Jesus fell down on his face before the Father, so overwhelmed with the thought of all that lay before him that he sweat, great, he sweat out great drops of blood, and he cried out to the Father, if it be possible, would you spare me? I am your beloved son. 
I'm the one who has been in your bosom from before the foundation of the world. I have done nothing but point others towards you and your glory. I've done only that which you have called me to do. Father, if it be possible, spare me from what comes next. But God the Father gave him up for us all. The word there is delivered. You read through the gospel stories and you see all kinds of men delivering Jesus. You see Judas delivering Jesus over to the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders delivering uh, Jesus over to Pilate. Pilate delivering Jesus over to be crucified. But we come to recognize it above and beyond and over the top of all of this is the God who is predestined that all of this would take place, that he would deliver up his son, his beloved son, his blessed son, the son on whom his infinite and eternal love has always rested. He says, I will not spare him. The son may ask, three times he may ask, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet, because in eternity past, we had decreed. The decree of redemption had been struck. There was no other way for the salvation of men apart from the death of the son. So the father looked to the son and said, I shall not spare you. The son delighted to do the will of the father. Again, they were not at cross purposes. And yet Jesus would not be holy if he delighted in the thought of taking our sins upon himself and having the wrath of God poured out upon him. This one who had never been separated from the Father, who had only known obedience to the Father. He would not be holy if he delighted in what came before him, in the wrath of the Father being poured out beyond measure upon him. So he cried out, Father, if it be possible, spare me from this. But the Father would not. He delivered him for us all. And if God would do this, in the words of Isaiah 53.10, if it would delight the Father to crush his son, if God does not delight in pouring out his wrath upon the heads of sinful men, if God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, how much less can he truly delight in pouring that same wrath out upon his son? He did not delight in the wrath for the sake of wrath. He delighted because in that wrath, we were seeing more of himself. His glory was being shown. And then in this display of glory, he was saving sinners like us. He was showing us the love of the Son resting upon us. If God would do this, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. All good things things we come to recognize that if there's something that we don't have in this life it is not because the father's arms are too short or his resources are too few there's something that we do not have in this life it is not because god the father is punishing us for our sins that it's adopted sons of the most high god is those who can now view ourselves as beloved because he has given up his beloved son we know that there is no good thing that he'll withhold from us that all that he desires for us to have, all that we need to have, we shall have. We know that any pain, any suffering, any torment, any fear, anything else that comes into this life, that he is using even that for our good. And we can be sure that he will not stop short. We can be sure that there's nothing we are going to do along the way that's going to dissuade him, that's going to discourage him, that's going to thwart his plan for our lives. For if he would give up his beloved son, for our life, surely he will do all good things for us. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we thank you that you did not spare your son.
that you sent your beloved. That the one who is deserving of nothing but your love received your wrath. The just punishment that we deserved fell upon him because he took our sins upon himself. And Father, as our hearts move, as we begin and prepare to shift next week towards the working of the Son, Father, I pray we never forget how he got there and the purpose in his coming. Father, if there be one here that does not yet know Christ Jesus as Lord, they have seen the gospel this day. They have seen it in the baptism. They have heard it in this message. Father God, we pray that you would save them. We pray that by the working of your spirit, through this word, you would save them. You would call them from darkness to light, from death to life, and you would save them. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.